Today's sermon comes from 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 4, 5. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that you, if I delay, may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the spirit, in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I want you to imagine that you are in a room that has bright green wallpaper on the walls. And then you move from that room to an adjoining room that has wallpaper that's just a a slight shade bluer, but it's unnoticeable to to the eye. Then you move to a third room that is slightly bluer than the second room, but again, it's such a slight shade different that you can't even notice it with, with your eye. Imagine you do this 50 times. So you go to adjoining room after adjoining room after adjoining room, and you finally get to this 50th room, and someone hands you a sample of the wallpaper color from the first room. And you look at it and you're shocked because you realize the room you're in is not green at all. It's actually blue. But this slow progression over time, you had just missed the big change that had happened. That is oftentimes what it looks like for someone to move away from Christ. It's a subtle path. And it's, it's subtle influences that very slowly and gradually shift one's hope from Christ to something else. That's what was happening in this church that Paul writes to in Ephesus. He says there were those that were departing from the faith. And it was a slow unwind. It begs the question, how do you know then? How do you know if you're on this subtle path with subtle influences that are subtly moving your hope from Christ to something else? That's what Paul is addressing here. Look what he says in verse 15. He explains the reason for his writing. He says, I'm writing to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, 
Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So Paul is about to explain the path towards godliness to a church that has a number of people that are moving towards godlessness, away from godliness. So what marks the path towards godliness? First, it's the person of Christ. It's the person of Christ. What Paul says at the end of chapter three is actually very striking. And it's striking if you understand the context of what he's speaking into. We learned back in chapter one at this church that there were false teachers in the church. And these false teachers were taking God's law, his commands, but, the, but mixing them with the myth of the day or the genealogy of the day and putting together this uh, this kind of special new way to become really spiritual, really godly, really holy. It was a special new way of mixing God's law with other stuff. I, I probably would compare it today to maybe some of the self-help techniques that are in our world. So the you know, five practices to become a more productive person. Or, or three essential ways uh, to improve your relationships, right? Or this innovative personality test that's gonna kind of unlock your full potential, make you aware of yourself and others. Now, none of those are bad in and of themselves. But those can supplant Christ and become where you set your hope. We, we are a people obsessed with finding the principle, the philosophy, the ideology, the law that's gonna change us, make us better, right? make us more spiritual. And this is the environment that Paul was writing into. Now, what is the path towards godliness? The way Paul answers that question is actually very striking because you would expect if he's speaking to a church where false teachers had come in and said, now we're going to take God's law, let's mix it with some myths and genealogies, you'd expect Paul to say, hey, hey, the way to godliness is just to get back to God's pure law. This not been tainted and distorted by false teachers. So let's just get back to God's pure commands, and then we're on our way to godliness. But that's not what Paul says. What does he say? Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Whenever in Paul's letters he uses the word mystery, he is referring to Christ as the revelation of God's hidden plan of salvation. So when he says the mystery of godliness is great, He's saying the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the key to godliness. That the path to godliness is a person, not principles. Path to godliness is a person. And so he unfolds Christ here, manifested in the flesh. That refers to Christ's incarnation, his birth into the world. Vindicated by the Spirit, 
That refers to Christ's resurrection. The word vindicated means to, to prove right. Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That's resurrection. Seen by the angels. That refers to the numerous times that angels witness Christ's birth, his life, his death, even his resurrection. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, that refers to Christ being proclaimed and received in faith. Taken up in glory refers to Christ ascending back into heaven after his resurrection. Where he is now, seated at the right hand of God so that every knee may bow to him. The path towards godliness is a person. It's not principles. Now, that being said, God's law, God's commands are good. But, but God's commands without the person of Christ will never lead to godliness. Because God's commands without Christ is moralism. And moralism never produces godliness. In fact, moralism produces just the opposite. Moralism produces pride. It produces self-righteousness. It doesn't produce love. It produces the opposite of love. And so moralism never produces godliness. God's commands without Christ never produce godliness. Jesus makes godliness possible. But it's not just the person of Christ and his work. It's not just knowing about Christ and what he's done. It's having relationship with Christ. Paul's relational language here in describing the church is beautiful. He uses three phrases to describe the church, and it's relational. He calls the church in verse 15, the household of God. At the beginning of chapter three, he used the word household to define the family unit. Right? Your family unit is based on relationships. He now says the church is a family. God's father, believers are children, sisters and brothers. The church is a relational community built on relationships. Then he calls the church the church of the living God. Church meaning the gathering or the assembly. That's the word in the Old Testament for church. Right, the gathering or the assembly of not people that just hold to the same principles, but the gathering of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, we are that we, the church, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. How did God dwell among us? He appeared in the flesh. He came in Jesus. And so you have this family of God as Father. Jesus Christ is the older brother. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're a member of the family. God's your Father, and Jesus is your older brother. It's relational. And so the path towards godliness is a person, it's Christ, but it's relationship. 
with Christ. It's a flourishing relationship with Christ that produces godliness. Sheer willpower adherence to God's commands, which I said, that apart from Christ is moralism, will never produce godliness. It won't work. It won't work long-term. It's a flourishing relationship with Christ that actually produces godliness. Moralism is never the path to godliness. It's actually what Paul's saying here, and we're gonna unpack it further. It's the path to godlessness. You say, why? I want you to imagine that you're in a sophisticated science lab, and you've got all of the latest equipment, tools, machinery at your hand. What would be the most effective way to get air out of a glass beaker? Now, you could ponder a number of ways that you could use this sophisticated machinery, equipment, to try to create a suction and suction air out of the glass beaker to create a vacuum. You'd ponder this enough until you figured out the most effective way to get air out of a glass beaker is to fill it with water. To fill it with water. Sheer willpower adherence to God's commands or sheer willpower avoidance of sin is like trying to suck air out of a glass beaker. Nature hates a vacuum. The empty beaker fights back. The empty beaker hates being empty. It demands content. And so it is with the human heart. The human heart hates a vacuum. It demands content. It demands content. Thomas Chalmers explains it this way. He says, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart, that it must have a something to lay hold of, in which if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. Sucking godlessness out of the human heart doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's pouring Christ into the human heart that begins to expel sinful relationships and sinful tendencies. Right? Just like water poured into a glass beaker expels the air, so Christ poured into the human heart begins to expel sin. It's a flourishing relationship with Christ that is the pathway to godliness. How would you describe your relationship with Christ? Would you describe it as warm and flourishing? Or would you describe it as cold and coexistent, maybe non-existent? If there is a 
sinful relationship, and by that I mean a relationship to something or someone that seems to be dominating your life. The answer is not to use your willpower to try to end that relationship because it won't work. Because as soon as you end that relationship, guess what's gonna happen? Another relationship is gonna move in to your heart. The way to expel that sinful relationship that seems to be dominating you is to work on your relationship with Christ, which takes intentionality, it takes time, like any relationship. You know, I have dealt with, over the years of ministry, with a number of couples whose marriages have been destroyed by adultery. I can say that I don't know of a case of adultery where husband and wife had a warm, flourishing, vital relationship, and then one day out of the blue, one of them just commits adultery. In every case, the relationship between husband and wife has begun to erode over time. It's become less warm and more cold. It's become more just coexistent. And as that happens, as that relationship begins to erode, guess what happens? Another relationship moves in. Right? As the beaker becomes empty, something else moves in. As, as that relationship erodes, another one moves in. The path to godliness is a flourishing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the path towards godliness, is a relationship with Christ that is full. But second, if that's the, the, the first path to godliness that Paul describes in this passage, he identifies the second thing that marks, or the second mark of this pathway to godliness, and that is the embrace of God's gifts. Beginning in chapter four, after he explains in the end of three the path towards godliness, in chapter four, he's gonna explain how some people in this church had gone down the path towards godlessness or away from godliness, away from Christ, departed from the faith. Verse one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now if we pause there, everyone would go, that's a no-brainer, right? I mean, if you devote yourself to the teachings of demons, you probably are gonna drift away from Christ, right? If you dabble in the occult, if you dabble in the demonic, clearly you're gonna move away from Christ. What's striking here is the content of the teachings of demons that Paul describes. He says in verse two that this teaching makes its way through actual people false teachers in this church, who he says are, are liars that have their consciences are seared, okay? But then verse three, what's the content of this evil, demonic teaching? Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. 
What was the teaching? It was the denial of fleshly appetites or the denial of fleshly desires as the path towards spirituality, as the path towards godliness. Now, that on the surface doesn't seem evil. In fact, and I'm going to show you through the history of the church, it seems actually very spiritual. Deny pleasures. Deny what you really want. And that's a sign of spirituality. What Paul's saying here is that this is actually not just wrong. It's demonic. It's of the devil. This kind of teaching has plagued the church since the first century. Let me give you a few examples. There was a, a sect of Jews in the first century who were reported by an early historian to reject pleasure as evil, but esteem continence, which just means self-restraint, as a virtue and to neglect marriage. The Greek culture of Ephesus surrounding this church taught that the body and its functions were evil and that the goal was to rise above the physical, to become more spiritual. Leland Riken, in his book, Worldly Saints, notes that the dominant attitude of the church through the Middle Ages was that sexual love itself was evil and did not cease to be so if its object were one's spouse. Tertullian and Ambrose, those were just very well-known theologians in the early centuries of the church, believed that the extinction of the human race was to be preferred to the sexual relationship within marriage. Ambrose went on to write that married people ought to blush at the state in which they are living. Augustine, another very famous early church theologian, argued that the sexual relationship was innocent in marriage, but the passion that accompanies it is always sinful. He frequently counseled married couples to abstain. The Roman church kept adding days in which marital intimacy was prohibited until it got to the point that over half the days of the year it was prohibited. And this continues in pockets of the church today. Self-denial. Now, let me, let me be clear here. There is a healthy self-denial. Right, the scriptures speak of deny yourself, take up the cross. I'm not speaking of denying sin or self, but this unhealthy, evil self-denial plagues the church because it is, a, on the appearance, it looks godly, it looks spiritual. To deny these desires, Paul says, it's just demonic. Why? Verse 3 because it's denying things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse four, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God is never worshiped and godliness is never attained by denial of his gifts. Two of them here, marriage and food, beautiful gifts of God, 
that God created marriage to be a good for human society, both inside and outside the church. Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Jesus affirms and honors marriage in Matthew 19 when he quotes from Genesis 2. In Genesis 9, God declares both plant and animals to be good food. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus declares all foods to be clean. The, The path towards godliness is not denial of God's good gifts, but embrace of God's good gifts that he gives us in creation. Now, let me just give two caveats here. God does call some to remain single. And God does give us the practice of fasting to be used in special situations. But the general will of God for his people is not celibacy and not eating certain types of food. Second caveat, when Paul says nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, that's not a warrant to abuse God's good gifts as long as you say thanks. Okay, so it's not, I'm gonna go abuse drugs, but as long as I say thanks, we're okay, we're good. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about God's gifts of creation that are given to us to be enjoyed, marriage and food being two of them. Now, while I said the church has always struggled through the centuries with this kind of false teaching creeping in, this unhealthy self-denial of God's good gifts, uh, there was a real eye-opening that happened in the 1500s in the Reformation. And surprisingly, it was the Puritans who really got back to major players in this, got back to Scripture and the Bible and what it teaches and began to overthrow this teaching and reveal it as evil. The Puritans devalued celibacy. They glorified marriage. And then listen to what one Puritan author wrote. When two are made one by marriage they may joyfully give due benevolence one to the other. That's great Puritan language. I'll let you figure out what that means. As two musical instruments rightly fitted do make a most pleasant and sweet harmony in a well-tuned concert. If you don't know what that means, come ask me afterwards and I'll explain that quote. But they uncovered the teaching of the scriptures that marriage is good, that sexuality in marriage is beautiful, that food is wonderful, good gifts of God's creation. Now, if this unhealthy form of self-denial is such an evil teaching, the question is asked, then why, do some, why are people drawn to it? Why has the church over the centuries been drawn to this kind of teaching? That's not biblical. Well, let me just say at a high level, the reason why people are drawn to this and why the church has been drawn to it is because it's a teaching of demons. It's of the devil. And the devil masquerades as an angel of light. Go back to Genesis 3 in the garden. How did the devil 
lure Adam and Eve away from their maker, from God. He didn't just say, hey, ditch God and follow me. That wouldn't have worked. No, he, he distorted and he twisted, right? We talk about the subtle path, the subtle influences. Slowly twisted God's word and, and God's creation that was good, but the devil twisted and perverted it to say there's something better that God's holding out on. It was a, it was a slow distortion and perversion of God's word, right, that they followed. And that is true with this kind of self-denial teaching, is that on the surface, it appears very spiritual. And that's because the devil masquerades as an angel of light. Now, let me get down to the ground on why, and I say people are drawn to this, honestly, why you and I are drawn to this day to day. I mean, this is drawing to the heart. Why? Let me give you two reasons why I believe that we're drawn to this kind of unhealthy self-denial. First, you can satisfy your conscience that may be stricken by sin by abstaining from something good that God gives you freedom to do. In other words, you can hide your inner wickedness by outward observance. And so if you abstain from something good, that can almost act like anesthesia on your conscience. It can numb it, it can satisfy it. It can numb the inner demands of the spirit. So that's one reason why. It's, it's a way that we try to satisfy our stricken conscience. Second reason why people are drawn to this is that it can be a way to compensate for unrighteousness. So if you find yourself unable to abstain from greed or gossip or sin, then you can choose to abstain from something good to compensate for that unrighteousness, to try to acquire righteousness. It's like balancing the books, right? So I, I'm, I'm not able to abstain here, so let me over here abstain from something good that's gonna balance the books and I can attain righteousness that way. The path to godliness is not denial of God's gifts. It is the embrace of God's gifts. Godliness is not becoming less physical and more spiritual. You say that again. Godliness is not becoming less physical and more spiritual or more immaterial. Jesus did not come to the earth as a hologram. He came and put on real flesh. The flesh that you have today, he put on. He put on a body to redeem bodies. When Jesus put on flesh, he affirmed the goodness of God's physical creation, the gift of marriage, the gift of food. Jesus came not to make you less human, but more human more human as God has designed you, enjoying his gifts to his glory. G.K. Chesterton wrote, you say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before I open a book 
and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in ink. There's a wonderful story by Isaac Denison called Babette's Feast. And it tells the story of this strict, dour, fundamentalist community in Denmark. And Babette is a cook in this community. And she works for two of the elder sisters in this community. And these sisters don't know that Babette used to be a chef to nobility in her previous, in her hometown of France. So Babette is longing to go home. She's longing to get back to France. And so she buys a lottery ticket in hopes to get enough money that she can make her way back. But every night, her employers, these sisters, demand that she cook the same dreary meal, boiled fish and potatoes. Because they say Jesus commanded, take no thought of food and drink. And then one day, the unbelievable happens. She wins the lottery. So she wins this lottery, and she goes to the townspeople uh, because the anniversary of this community was coming up, and she offered to cook them a really nice French dinner in celebration of this anniversary. And at first, people, the t- uh, first the townspeople refuse. They say, no, it would be sin to indulge in such rich food. But she begs them. Finally, they relent, and they say, as a favor to you, we will allow you to serve us this French dinner. But the people secretly vow not to enjoy the feast and instead to occupy their minds with spiritual things. Believing God will not blame them for eating this sinful meal as long as they do not enjoy it. So Babette starts ordering the food, and caravans are coming into this village with you know, exquisite food and fine wine, and it all gets there, and, and she begins to cook this meal, and the first course appetizer comes out of turtle soup, and all the townspeople put it down, making sure they don't enjoy it. Usually when they eat, they eat in silence, but after this appetizer, they begin to talk a little bit. There's some conversation at the table, And then out rolls the fine wine, then out rolls the exquisite main course, which is quail. And suddenly, this dour, fundamentalist community starts to erupt with some laughter and some giggling and some smiling. And they begin sharing stories with each other. And love is just permeating through this room and this community that has been so dour suddenly just comes alive with life and love. So one of the sisters goes back to the kitchen to thank Babette and says, Babette, thank you so much. This has transformed our community and we're gonna miss you when you go back to France. And she said, I I won't be going back to France because I spent all of my money on this feast. Now, can you think of someone who gave his all who emptied himself to provide a feast for you and me. It's a feast that regularly we celebrate that we call the Lord's Supper. 
but it's a feast that one day when Jesus returns will be a full marriage feast. What a picture of the contrast between a community that believes the path towards godliness is self-denial, the unhealthy form of self-denial, versus a community that believes the path towards godliness is Christ, the one who gave himself for us so that we, as redeemed children of God, may enjoy his good gifts of creation with joy and happiness and relate to one another with astounding love. And I will just say that when a church gets hold of that and begins living like that, it is an incredibly powerful witness to the world because most of the church's witness to the world is we don't do that, right? We don't do that. And yes, there is truth in that. But where does the church step up and say, instead of watching the good gifts of God's creation being abused, and we say, so we're just not gonna do it. We don't want any association with that. How about the church stepping up to say, let's show the world how to enjoy God's gifts rightly through the power of his Holy Spirit and the redemption of Christ. That, that is a powerful witness. Let's pray. Father, we confess before you how often we run to sheer willpower to avoid sin or try to adhere to your commands apart from Christ. And we recognize the emptiness of moralism how it leads to the opposite of godliness, to godlessness. Oh, Father, would you by your spirit make us a people who have such flourishing relationship with Jesus Christ that the sinful relationships are weakened and pushed away and, and that as we relate to you, Jesus, that we see the good gifts of your creation and we enjoy them rightly to your glory. And Father, would that produce a community that is alive and full of joy and full of love and may it be a witness to a world that has taken the gifts of God and used them and abused them. Father, may we be a church that takes those good gifts and enjoys them to your glory. Oh, Father, would you make us a people that feast on Christ, that our relationship with Jesus would grow and our love for you and others would grow along with that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.